0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
3: Hello, and welcome to Slow News, the podcast where we focus on what's driving the news, not breaking news. I'm Basha Cummings. This has been a grim week for Britain. Six weeks into lockdown, we marked a terrible milestone. 29,500 deaths and rising. We now have the highest number of deaths from COVID-19 in Europe and the second highest number of deaths in the world after the US. And much as there might be debate about whether international comparisons hold up, there's no way of getting around this. It's a terrible, terrible number and it's going to get worse. But the question that we're asking this week is... Does this mean that Britain's coronavirus response has been a disaster? Boris Johnson recently described the last few weeks of lockdown as an apparent success. We've passed the peak and our hospitals haven't been overwhelmed, he said. And those big-ticket flagship projects proposed by the government have also been presented as successes. The Nightingale Hospitals, those huge exhibition centres converted into emergency field hospitals and built within just days, well, they've stood mostly empty. But it's a victory, we're told. But it has also started a debate about whether or not they were the right call in the first place. What do they tell us about the way the government has dealt with this pandemic? We asked Giles Wattell, fellow editor of mine here at Tortoise, to investigate this. And he spoke to senior doctors, public health experts, and healthcare administrators, some of whom had worked directly on the delivery of the emergency response. Slow News is a podcast made by us, here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily sense maker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings to help decide what matters in the world, and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial. That's tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help make the news. Welcome, Giles. So you've been investigating the Nightingale Hospital Tell me, why are we focusing on this now?
1: I think mainly because it has absorbed so much public attention, but also energy on the part of government and the NHS. The creation of this surplus capacity, surplus intensive care capacity, became such a focus of the whole government response to the pandemic and was then scarcely used. That The question arises, why was it created in the first place?
3: So, can you answer that question? Why was it created in the first place? What was the decision making process and what informed it?
1: So, we have to go back to the beginning of March when the epidemic is already reaching a peak in Italy, far worse than anyone there or looking in from outside expected. And its hospitals and its intensive care units are being overwhelmed.
3: They're fighting a war here and they're losing. The sheer numbers of people succumbing to the coronavirus
1: is overwhelming every hospital in Northern And in the UK, the health service and the government's special medical and scientific advisers are asking themselves, if this is coming to us, how do we cope? The assumption was that we would have to build a large amount of extra capacity very quickly. So then the question is how and where.
3: You've been talking to quite a few people who were involved in the process of setting up the first Nightingale. So what have you learned about the decision-making process that was happening in those early days before we went into a lockdown?
1: It was improvised. Even those who are now very proud of the work that they did at great speed setting up the Nightingale recognise that they were in that position in the start because of a lack of planning. One of the very senior NHS administrators who had put in a senior position to get the Nightingale project going said in a moment of, of, of candour, we all knew that our planning was crap. I spoke to Lawrence Dunhill of the Health Service Journal, who covered the entire saga of the establishment of the Nightingales. We should have
2: been preparing much earlier it's only in the middle of uh, the middle of march that uh, a big guidance document went out which is what you might have expected you know a month earlier or so to at least say we think this is a serious risk of this happening this is what you'll need to do in a month's time for example but instead it was this is what you need to do right now
1: england and wales have had many fewer intensive care beds and ventilators per thousand or hundred thousand of the population than most European countries and even than most East European countries. And one of those I spoke to realised that he would have to scale up by a factor of about four to, in other words, just for his patch to find 650 intensive care beds from around 150 and initially, the the plan, the, the, the most uh, obvious or easy thing to do would be simply to scale up capacity in existing hospitals. But they quickly decided that that would be impossible because each of those hospitals would have had to uh, reassign so many staff that that every other part of the operation would have been unstaffed. And there was also an interesting technical point that he raised, which was if the flood of COVID patients coming in that was expected materialised, they would need more oxygen than any of the hospitals could supply. Anyway, long story short, after some late night ad hoc conversations over FaceTime and Zoom with beers at their elbows, as I understand it, a small group of people came down to a choice of two Locations. This was after looking at warehouses, one of them told me, uh, in North London and rejecting them. And the final two were Olympia in West London and Excel.
2: Excel London is the capital's premier conference and exhibition venue. We've got a track record of delivering fantastic world-class events, and that's because of the flexibility uh, of our venue. We have a total of 100,000...
1: And they opted for Excel once they were clear that they would be able to get enough oxygen there uh, because it had better transport links.
3: Just describe what it was exactly that they built, because we've heard about space for thousands of bed and we've heard about how many metres of piping for oxygen there was. But just describe exactly what the Nightingale was when it was built.
1: Uh, well, it, it was to start with a conference centre and one of the Points that uh, my principal source on this made rather ruefully at the end of it uh, was that it is still a conference center and it's no more than that. But the plan was to put into it 2,700 intensive care beds and six or 700 so called step down beds for recovery. But that was not the initial plan. The initial plan was much more ambitious. It was to provide what they called the full pathway involving so, so that patients could be offered non-invasive, as well as invasive ventilation. That's a distinction that we'll come to. It's very important. Uh, Before that, testing, and after that, recovery. But then, as it was described to me, Mm -hmm. uh, there were these three critical days just before lockdown on Monday the 23rd. Before that, the Friday was the first day they were on site. On Saturday, they had military engineers on site. On Sunday, they got the go-ahead and building was begun on the Monday. But on that Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, they received a phone call from centre of government to say that they had looked again at the doubling rate, the time it was taking for infection rates to double. And that had shrunk from four days to three.
2: The best scientific analysis now is that the rate of infection has been doubling every three to four days. And of those. Which
1: had an immediate knock on impact on what was required of the XL. They were going to have to go up from 2,000 to closer to 4,000 beds. And it was at that point that they realised well, we cannot have this full pathway. We've got to make it simple. We've got to do one thing and one thing only. And that's why they ended up, as I understand it, with only full invasive ventilation on offer at the XL.
3: That's fascinating. So it sort of sounds like what you're describing is a flagship medical facility that was born out of fear and no small amount of panic and an attempt to just create capacity as things were starting to really accelerate in late March.
1: Right. And panic is a word that you hear... Very often, talking to people who are involved in it. And a key point is that this was a blunt instrument. Even at the time, there were specialists who were well aware that this was not necessarily going to be an appropriate response to what turned out day by day to be a more complex rather than a less complex disease. The
2: people at the centre, so, so the the Department of Health and the, and the very senior kind of echelons of NHS England, wanted this to be a an intensive care facility. One person in the nearby hospital described it as an intensive care barn.
1: That's Lawrence Dunhill, Bureau Chief at the Health Service Journal. And he said that once it became clear that the model was to install invasive ventilation throughout, there was considerable pushback from the hospitals that would be required
2: to staff those wards. They knew that if the Nightingale was going to be an intensive care hospital, then they would have to staff that, and the staff were going to have to come from London's other hospitals. And, and they were not keen on their teams sort of being split up and diluted. And they also felt like they were, that they were at that point containing the, the surge within the, the extra beds they'd created on their sites.
1: And th- this was a major source of tension.
3: And Giles, how was this playing out internationally? What were other countries like Italy and Spain doing?
1: We were not, not an outlier, even in, in Spain and Italy, And also we'd seen in China, they'd built a whole new hospital. And in Washington state, one of the early American hotspots, they also had uh, assumed that they would need to build extra acute care capacity very quickly.
0: Meanwhile, D.C. government going ahead with a plan to open up a temporary hospital at the D.C. Convention Center
1: to handle what may be a surge in coronavirus cases. An effort underway, despite some evidence, it may not be needed. But we did go for it on a particularly big scale. And this is partly because of the concentration of early infections in London and the size of London. As one person put it to me, we realised that we would have one chance at it. We might as well go once and go big.
3: And now, six weeks later, we've just had the announcement that it is basically on pause and not needed
1: the question arises, why was it so clear six weeks ago that we needed this capacity? And now it's clear enough to the government that we don't need it, that they're mothballing not just the London Hospital, but others in Birmingham, Harrogate, Bristol, and Manchester. And the first three of those four have seen no patients at all. And And on Monday, the London Hospital, the XL Hospital, had 200 staff and 12 patients. So, It's an extraordinary turn of events.
3: But what's interesting, and the thing that sort of trips me up in all of this, is that today we've also passed the grim milestone that we have the highest death rate in Europe. So despite the fact that we've clearly had so many people dying, somehow these Nightingale hospitals were not useful in trying to halt the number of deaths.
1: That's right. In the end, they turned out not to be the answer, and the question is why, and there are three practical answers and one more intangible one. The first is simply that we learn more about the disease over the course of the pandemic, and it turned out that many patients did just as well with so-called CPAP oxygen masks rather than invasive ventilation. Those are the kind of masks that Boris Johnson had, which deliver oxygen at pressure to your mouth and nose. The second was...
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax
3: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync...
1: Go to BlueNile.com
0: and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code
1: PROGRAM. So it turned out to be very complicated to transport uh, patients who were already very sick Two hospitals, especially if they were already in an intensive care bed in another one. And that turns out to be the case whether they have a mask on or whether they were already ventilated with invasive ventilation. And the third was staffing. Uh, To staff up the XL Nightingale properly, if it was ever full, was going to take 16,000 staff. uh, And that depended entirely on other London hospitals being prepared to share staff. And understandably, they weren't, especially specialist staff from Uh, hard-pressed intensive care units in London hospitals. So the staffing required never materialised. Now, the fourth and less tangible reason, of course, is lockdown. It worked. Contrary to what behavioural scientists thought, the Brits broadly behaved, they stayed at home. Pictures of many of them out in London parks did not reflect reality and the infection rate fell sharply. And the lockdown worked. And ultimately, that is the single most important reason everybody I've spoken to agrees why in the end, the Nightingales were not needed and London's busiest hospitals even were not overwhelmed.
3: Giles, when the Nightingale was announced, by Matt Hancock, the health secretary. You know, it came with some fanfare and was shown as an example of how swiftly the government was executing its plans. How has this played out politically?
1: I think it's fair to say that it was seized upon, not surprisingly, by ministers at once as a rallying point for public optimism and hope. The idea was dreamt not long ago of having a new hospital and this... Uh, an expression of a can-do spirit, action this day, if you like, to use the, the Churchillian phrase. The work and the brilliance of many people. It is the best of efforts, it is the best of the NHS and it is the best of Britain to come together in these difficult circumstances to put together such a- So one public health expert whom I spoke to, Robert Dingwall of Nottingham Trent University, who is a member of NerveTag, that's the New and Emerging Respiratory Virus Threats Advisory Group, said that as far as he could tell, in the end, the government simply couldn't resist the pressure to be seen to be doing something. Whether that something had any scientific justification, whether it had an evidence base, what was important was the was, was the perception of, of action in the face of the crisis rather than, if you like, prudential management. So you can see that having started, even if clinicians are saying, steady on, this is not the right response to what is turning out to be a very complex disease, which was the case, having committed to it and having, frankly, Garnered days and days of favourable headlines. It was very hard politically to abandon the project, and so they went ahead, completed it. Prince Charles opened it, uh, and at that stage, it was it was fair to assume that that it would fill up. Nobody nobody suspected that it wouldn't, but events turned out very differently.
3: I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? The government has. F- Fanfed a series of flagship projects, the Nightingales being one of them. But the other, which I'd like to talk about now, is the ventilator challenge, that call to the private sector to help manufacture machines that ministers predicted would be urgently required. The number we heard a lot of in those early days was that we needed 18,000 and the NHS only had 10,000 ventilators. And of course, it's important to talk about because these two flagship projects are really closely connected because it was obviously in the Nightingale, which could have had a capacity of 4,000 beds. It was there that these ventilators were to be used. So, Giles, what happened with all those ventilators?
1: Well, initially, the problem appeared to be very similar to broader ICU capacity. We don't have enough of them. In mid-March, NHS England could put their hands on about 5,000 proper specialist ventilators. That's excluding those that are used only for shorter periods together with anaesthetic for operations. If you add in those anaesthetic machines to those that were built to be used 24-7, then there were a little over 8,000 to start with at a time when The modelling indicated that we might need up to 60,000.
2: So in the round, all told, we have 8,175. For some weeks now, we've been out uh, preparing and procuring uh, mechanical ventilators uh, and can see uh, a line of sight over the next several
1: weeks. Then the challenge was to get more. How do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is is go to your existing manufacturers, and about two in the UK, and say, please, can you build more? And uh, they have. They've gone on to sort of three shifts, working 24 hours a day. The second thing you do is you try to buy elsewhere in the world, uh, but everyone else was trying to do the same thing, and uh, Britain was, frankly, slow to get in the queue. There was a a particularly egregious case of, of an order placed with China.
2: We've been buying invasive ventilators from partners abroad, including Germany and Switzerland, and today 300 new ventilators arrived from China. I'd like to thank the Chinese government for their support in securing that capacity.
1: Ventilators uh, delivered, but none of them serviceable. That was about 250 of them. And then the third thing you can do, and this was the origin of the, the ventilator challenge, is ask UK manufacturers if they can turn their hands to making ventilators. So in principle, the response was enthusiastic. More than 60 firms got in touch with the government after the cry for help went out and said, yes, we can We can try to do this. Broadly, the results of that appeal for help from the private sector fall into two categories, failures and successes. It is the case that I think all those who came forward to build ventilators that they set out to design themselves from scratch, have failed or the government has withdrawn support. But there is a second category, including members, there's a 20-strong consortium which make up uh, Ventilator Challenge UK, which has had more luck mainly because instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, they have taken two particular models of ventilator and brought sort of the, the engineering muscle of big firms, including the Ford and uh, Mercedes and Airbus, to ramping up production. And in those cases, the production is going ahead. And there are orders in for 10,000 of each of those two models. The orders are still there. The ventilators are still being made. They do meet fairly demanding specifications. But here's the strange thing. Rather like the beds in the nightingales, they're no longer required.
3: So it turns out that by the time these ventilators will be delivered, they will be surplus to requirements. Isn't that a good thing, Giles?
1: Yes, it's clearly a good thing that we haven't had a terrible shortage of ventilators. But if you take a step back, you have rapidly built capacity with ventilators and you have Hospitals that were expecting to be overwhelmed, but are not. And at the same time, you have care homes where people are dying in their hundreds, if not thousands, and still uncounted deaths in the community. And one of the people that I spoke to tracks numbers globally and has some pretty gloomy projections, which were published uh, earlier this week, saying that on current trend, the UK will end up with more than 40,000 deaths, more than 9,000 more than in Italy, which was, according to this set of projections, would be the next highest death toll. Quite clearly, ventilators were another example of a response that the government fixed on, made extravagant promises about, and failed to deliver on. So at one point, the target was 30,000. That was brought down to 18,000. That has still not been reached And I have to say, one of those people I spoke to said that the whole project reminded him of the garden bridge and the airport in the estuary, which people with long memories may remember have something in common, and that is they were both pet projects of Boris Johnson.
3: So we've discussed the two big headline projects that the government launched at the beginning of lockdown, the Nightingale Hospitals and the Ventilator Challenge. And we've come in under capacity. We didn't need them in the end. It's easy to say, well, that's a huge success. And many people have. And it's true that to an extent that must be the case. But hearing you talk about it, it's clearly not that simple. And there's a great deal of complexity to this. I wonder which side are you leaning on in this, Giles?
1: Well, journalistically, I have to say, first of all, the story is not over. We all know that there could be a second surge in infections. And one point on which everyone, administrators, specialist clinicians can agree on is we may yet be grateful for this extra capacity. And uh, who knows, if a second surge comes in, in a few months, it may be that the nightingales can be unmothballed with appropriate equipment in them. So then you come back to the white elephant argument. Was this misconceived from the start? I don't think it was misconceived from the start. I think it's definitely too soon to second guess the sort of basic initial decisions. But what is very clear is that once the process got going, there was a chronic failure of communication between the experts who knew better than anyone, I'm not saying exactly, but better than anyone what would be required, and the people in government and advising government who determined whether or not it would get built. People in many of the conversations that I had started guardedly and then after a while the guard comes down and you get phrases like, Giles, honestly, it was just a total mess. One of those I spoke to who has been closely involved in planning and executing the response to the pandemic Is concerned, above all, that those who've been taking the decisions, which in so many cases have been proven to be flawed decisions, should not get away with congratulating themselves.
2: And we have voiced up some of his words. It's the failure to prepare adequately and the price that has had to be paid alongside the lack of transparency over how those decisions were made. When this is all over, we have to take a really long look at ourselves about how we got into this mess, about how close we came to something genuinely catastrophic. It'll be very difficult to watch people walk off into the sunset with an array of gongs saying, didn't we all do well? We have to ask ourselves why we were in the starting position we were in, because this may not be the last pandemic. The way it usually works is they string it out getting to the inquiry and then revise the past, and that serves no one. With forewarning of what would happen without preparation, we chose to fail to prepare. That very useful, now is not the time, just lets people off too easily.
1: Another analogy that was that was offered was with the Tet Offensive in Vietnam when um, the RAND Corporation think tank in the U.S., was confidently telling the Pentagon that the US was going to win. It had the firepower, it had the people on the ground, and then bruised and wounded lieutenants were coming back from the front line and saying, no, we're having the shit kicked out of us. And people described a similar disconnect between the front line and the theorising over the past six weeks in the response to this crisis. So in the end, one has to hope that the inquiry comes sooner rather than later And as people said to me, let us not allow those who are telling themselves and us that they did a great job to simply rewrite what actually happened.
3: Giles, this has been incredibly insightful. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a good chance that you'll enjoy all the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. Articles and investigations that you can read on our app or online. And we're an open newsroom, which means that there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So get our app and you can get access to everything that we do. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash and get your 30-day free trial. And just as importantly, of course, if you like this podcast, do share it, or you can give us a review. Thanks very much. See you next week.